guess who's coming to town? It's me. I will be speaking at the National Restaurant Association trade show this weekend in Chicago. In addition to the keynote, I'm offering complimentary one-on-one coaching sessions at the Yelp for Restaurants booth. Be sure to stop by booth 6054 to say hello and sign up for a strategy session. And if you can't make it, check out the Yelp for Restaurants site for a ton of free tools and templates to help you level up your restaurant today. Visit restaurants.yelp.com to learn more. Now here we go. I think it's interesting in this post-pandemic world where things had a chance to be put on hold. And as far as the system of kitchen and dining room and those dynamics, I think I was lucky enough to work in a restaurant that really believed in breaking down that wall. Culturally, moving in that direction of embracing that teamwork mentality and whether that's from the starting to narrow that pay gap or benefits or just moving away from, the, I think, that culture of restaurants being romanticized as this hardcore, ruthless environment. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Our guests, even our most loyal guests, can cook at home. They don't come to us for nourishment. They come to us for entertainment. Food and beverage done well as a performance art, and few have done it better than 11 Madison Park. Today we chat with Natasha McIrvin, the former head of the Dreamweaver program at EMP. Her job was to build a system that ensured surprise and delight were baked into every guest experience. In our conversation, she shares the system she built and the tactics she used to transform servers into the weavers of dreams. Yeah, I, it started, I mean, all the way back in the eighth grade, I took a cooking class and I was a very determined little kid and came home and told my mom that I wanted to be a chef. And so she was like, well, we'll see if this sticks. And it did. And I really kind of pursued that all through high school and learned about the Culinary Institute of America and was determined to go there. And so pretty much had my sights set on restaurants and that world from a young age. I graduated high school and then went straight to the CIA in Hyde Park, upstate New York. And yeah, just really fell in love with everything that restaurants were, really started to kind of learn more about what working in the dining room looked like. I did my externship working at Boulay in Tribeca and as a way to make some extra cash, would work in the dining room on my days off. And so learned a little bit more about that higher level of service. And when I graduated culinary school, I ended up going to Japan for three months. I became fascinated with Japanese cuisine and kaiseki. And there's also a really beautiful approach to service that those restaurants had. And I mean, I think when you talk about like hospitality and taking things to the next level, there's like something there that's just rooted in so much history. So I loved my time there and then came back to New York again, was like, I need to make some money. And so did the kind of what they call like switching over to the dark side (laughs) and switched from working in kitchens to working in the dining room, thinking that it would be a temporary thing just to make a little bit of money, would go back to working in kitchens. But ironically, the restaurant that I decided to work in the dining room at was 11 Madison Park. So I walked in the doors, sat down for an interview with Will 
Will Gadara, and kind of the rest is history. I came back that night for an interview, got the job, started at the very bottom, and ended up working my way all the way up to creative director by the time I left. I was there for almost 10 years. And so I saw kind of the restaurant go through a number of changes. I mean, when I first started there, we were number 50 on the 50 best list. We only had one Michelin star. It wasn't at the early, early phase of when the changes started happening there, but I definitely got to see a pretty wide scope of kind of the magic as it evolved at at Madison Park. Only one Michelin star? I mean, just slumming it, huh? I know, I know. Those are the rough days. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's funny. We were actually the first restaurant to jump from one to three stars. So we were pretty proud of that. But yeah, I remember at the time we had one Michelin star and we kept on using it as as an example, just to show how crazy it was that we thought we had one Michelin star. The Spotted Pig also had one Michelin star. So we're like, come on, we can do better. So yeah. So I want to talk about that evolution over time. First of all, I mean, they talk about being in the restaurant industry and the same way they talk about like being married in Los Angeles, like <laughs> one year is the equivalent of five years or 10 years. So 10 years at a single restaurant, especially in fine dining is unheard of and relatively difficult, especially when you look through the lens of that the restaurant you left was certainly not the restaurant you got hired at. So much changed. And I think it's very easy to see, and this is the product of my own experience as a restaurateur, but also many conversations with Will. It's very easy to look at the trajectory of EMP and say, oh, well, I mean, that's linear. They just got better every day. And one day they were the best, but it's not. It's a series of trial and error. And so my question to you is through the trial and error process of iterating, of getting better, of evolving, which some things weren't evolution, right? They were just changes that were gone back on and so on and so forth, such as the nature of things. How did you stay motivated? How did you stay engaged as a person? And how did they work to motivate and engage you through this time of change? I mean, I think honestly, that's probably the answer to why I stayed as long as I did is they did do such a good job of keeping me motivated. And even when I first started there, I think my plan was never to stay at that restaurant as long as I did, or even in New York City, as long as I have. I kind of had aspirations of traveling and maybe opening a restaurant back in Seattle where I'm from. So, I mean, from the get-go, I remember they just brought you into the fold. I remember within the first couple months of me being there, they were shooting photos for the cookbook and asked a bunch of the, it was the first of Madison Park cookbook, and they asked a bunch of kitchen servers if they could come in and help. And I volunteered because I was interested. And it was a cool new experience that I just kind of enlisted and signed up for. And so I think what they did is they like from the bat kind of left this open invitation. And I think I felt the same way. I mean, at culinary school, I would say that a lot of people are kind of faced with this is you can really plug into an opportunity and take everything away from it that you can, or you can just skate by and treat it like a job. And so I think they had had a good variety of opportunities for you to plug in and get more involved be that the happy hours that we would do, which were not so much like a traditional happy hour, but an educational class that they would lead on, I think it was Wednesdays at the time, and different people in higher up positions would teach a class that could be anything from wine and food related to the history of New York. I think they did like a walking tour one time through Madison Square Park. And so it was something that, yeah, he would come in on your time off. And at the time, it was an unpaid thing. But if it was something that if you wanted to kind of get more engaged and get more involved, 
there was plenty of opportunities to do so. And then I think we even had the program that they named at the time called the ownership program, where I thought it was a really great way to tap into the talent of your existing team members in ways that are a little bit maybe unconventional. For example, we had, and Will talks about this in his book, but Jim Betts, who was really passionate about coffee and he was a bartender, but we were looking to have the best coffee program. And so instead of the management team having to kind of figure out how to bring the best coffee to the table, it's like, wait, why not just tap into the person who gets really nerdy about coffee and let him kind of do his thing and give him ownership over something in the restaurant. Similarly, another guy who worked with us was a DJ in a past life, and he ended up kind of curating all of our playlists. And what it did is it created this really multi-layered dynamic experience that I don't think you would have gotten in the same way as if it was kind of like forced on to someone. And so for me, I think it was within the first couple months of being there, Will approached me, and I think I must have mentioned something to him in my interview or something. I was very involved in high school and events and whatnot and class council and things like that. And we had an annual party that they would throw every year. I think it was, it had started maybe, it had been two years running by the time I started. And it was our Kentucky Derby party. And it was an idea that Will kind of fell in love with. Just the essence of that party is is kind of the perfect amount of things that get you excited to have a party. It's hats, it's cigars, it's the race that's happening, everyone's focused on this one moment. So 11 Madison Park decided to kind of throw the best derby party outside of Kentucky. All that to say, the gentleman who had been kind of running and planning that event was on his way out. He was starting to kind of look elsewhere. And so there was a void that needed to be filled. And Will approached me and he was like, I think you might be good at this. Maybe like give it a shot, maybe get involved with this event. And I kind of took it and ran with it. And that ultimately became my area of ownership and led to so many other events and other things. But that was definitely an, a, a way to that kept me engaged and then kind of like snowballed and evolved over the years in my time there. There's this consistent theme that I think is going to pop up through the conversation, which is kind of if you build it, they will come. And I think the first real example of that is I can't imagine that the people listening aren't wowed by the level of effort the leadership team at 11 Madison Park went to, to educate people and to make people feel engaged and to make people feel empowered. And I think so many times when you're strapped for money, you're strapped for time, you're perpetually overwhelmed as an owner and operator. These seem like nice to haves, not need to haves. And I also think, especially if you're outside of the fine dining tier, which the first fine dining restaurant I ever worked in was the one that I built myself, which I would not recommend to others. But I thought it would be as easy as running a bar or running a nightclub. I mean, how many more pieces could it possibly have? But what I found was in fine dining, you're more busy, not less busy than, let's say, lower tiers of dining or other tiers of dining. So it's not like they had a lot of time or a lot of capital to deploy to get all of these things done in the early days. It just seems like when people talk about company culture and what is our company culture, it's for EMP. And I'm sure that you've internalized this as well. It was doing and like doing for others. Yeah, the more I think that was like the exciting thing. It was not necessarily more is more, but yeah, how can we do something differently? How can we grow? How can we reinvent something? And yeah, definitely that mindset of, you know, if you build it, they will come, I think. 
the derby party, I think there were so many moments that I remember Will sometimes explicitly saying or kind of being the mantra coming from high up that we need to take what we do seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously. And so there were kind of those staccato moments throughout the year that allowed us to kind of let our hair down, derby being one of those or other moments, team building, other activities that really let the team come together in a way and it was definitely like a magical time and a special time to be at the restaurant so I feel lucky to have started when I did I think it was definitely a time when there was a lot of transition and turnover at certain levels and so I was able to move up pretty quickly and then kind of plug into the various programs that they offered. All events are not created equal especially all restaurant events are not created equal and a bunch of the events that you helped were absolutely spectacular. I mean, not just inspiring the imagination of patrons, but inspiring the imagination of other restaurateurs. How do you do that? What are the essential elements of an incredible event in your mind when you start architecting something on that scale? What does that look like? I mean, I think general kind of look and feel and flow is really important. I mean, I think everyone goes through that process, but then I think it's like in the various kind of aspects, it's like, where can you layer on? And maybe it's something that people may not notice, but I don't know. It's I think for the Derby, for example, I would dig deep into understanding the history of the Kentucky Derby. I had never heard of the Kentucky Derby before. I'd never been to a horse race before. And there's so many elements to horse racing culture tradition that uh, race specifically there are certain things imagery that's tied with it and so I really did a deep dive into kind of what the Kentucky Derby meant in its current form so then I could understand what elements from it I wanted to pull and to kind of plug into our event and so ultimately there are things that like I said some people may not even notice but adds to kind of the experience and makes it I think more layered and dynamic I remember we had our private dining room upstairs, which overlooks the main room and trying to figure out how to activate that space and get people to move up there and excited about it. And it is a space that's quite removed from the rest of the restaurant. And so one of the things that I remember learning about the Derby is the Lily's Oaks race. I might not be saying that right, Um, but the Oaks race, which is like the day before. And I believe they raced the Phillies. My Derby facts are a little bit rusty right now. And whereas the Kentucky Derby is all about red roses, that's the whole look. The Lily's Oaks race is all lilies and it's kind of like a different aesthetic. And so I remember learning about that. And then I was like, okay, perfect. Let's design the whole upstairs space to be this whole other part that's kind of the segue into the Derby. We'll have it be a champagne bar, etc. And then over the years, as the Derby grew, I mean, there's only so many people you can kind of fit in that restaurant, but we were lucky enough to have really amazing partners with the building and they allowed us to kind of take over the lobby space right next to the restaurant and spill out into that area. And so then again, it's like you have this whole new space. And so how do you reimagine it? What other parts of the Derby could we lean into? We ended up getting, it kind of ended up turning into more of like a carnival aspect where we had this big like vintage rollerball game. It's like ski ball where everyone's like rolling along the line and just like fun moments where I just think of as a guest, how would I want to, I've been, because the Derby was ultimately a party that had so many regulars year after year coming. And so it's like, how do you give them something different to experience year after year? We ended up then partnering with chef friends that we knew. So Sean Brock came in one year and we kind of did like a fried chicken one-off where Daniel had his fried chicken and Sean Brock had his fried chicken. So just different ways that kind of gave, yeah, like a unique experience for guests who are coming year after year. Which fried chicken was better? 
Oh, <laughs> I can't I'm just kidding. That. You don't have to answer the question. <laughs> I do have a question about building out these events. So budgets and return on investment. Did I can't imagine because I know that EMP seems otherworldly, but it's still a restaurant yeah. that exists on the planet. And so it's got to abide by the same rules that all restaurant businesses do. So, I mean, did that play a consideration? What were the guidelines or how did you self-govern in those aspects? Yeah, I mean, it was something that I feel, again, that was like the amazing thing of working with the team is it wasn't so constrained. I mean, we didn't want to lose money, but it wasn't necessarily ever designed to be a money-making event or opportunity. I mean, I think it was just baked into the yearly budget that that would be something that would be happening every year. Ultimately, it was something that by that point, we had enough kind of relationships where we were able to bring in sponsors at different levels and help cover some of the costs. But it was ultimately when you think about how much you would make on a normal night of service, it's not equal. But for what it does as far as like culture for your team, because everyone gets excited about the day being a little bit different than it usually is. The room looks a little bit different. They don't have to wear their uniform as usual. Right. I remember Kevin Brown, who was this captain who had been with the restaurant for years. And every year we put him up, we had a fried chicken station also up in the private dining room and he would just be there serving chicken. And it was just this fun opportunity for him to kind of be a little bit less formal or to interact with people. I mean, we had people outside just kind of joking around. It, there was just, it gave everyone an opportunity to almost like step into character or a different character than they were used to playing. And so ultimately the, that kind of investment, I think was far more worth, worthwhile than turning a profit. So the Derby, luckily, because it was more or less like plug and play. I mean, yes, we kind of grew it and changed things year after year. There were elements that could be <laughs> reused. I think the first year that I came in, I got really excited about having a giant horse topiary in the dining room. I just fixated on that. And so I bought this horse topiary. And so that came back year after year. And so obviously that's one-time cost that you can kind of pick up again, but it did end up being profitable, which was great. And it was fun to kind of like see those numbers grow. And then also over the years, I think we ended up running it around right around 10 years and bigger sponsors wanted to get involved. And towards the end, we had GQ or Esquire magazine coming in and doing coverage on the event. So I think it was something that probably initially, and I wasn't there for the first year, those first kind of budgets, but it definitely was kind of meant to be something where it's like, we're, we're not going to necessarily be taking a loss, but we'll be worth it in the long run. And your role evolves over time with the restaurant, with Will and Daniel's experiences. And you and Will end up with this shared dream for this Dreamweaver concept. Talk to me about what that is and what the genesis of that was. So the Dreamweaver concept, when I remember it first starting, and I will say I was never an actual Dreamweaver myself. I feel like I need to clarify that because the people who are actually Dreamweavers are wildly talented. I definitely don't want to feel like I'm stepping into their shoes, but I was there for the whole evolution of that program. I remember I was a captain at the time, which is kind of like the head server position. And every night before service, we would have a lineup live at five, five o'clock. You'd gather the whole dining room team in the upper area of the dining room, stand in a circle, then everyone would get a piece of paper, which were your lineup notes. And they included pretty standard information, updates on 
maybe different cocktails, different foods on the menu, different, maybe the floral arrangement had changed. And so we were supposed to know what the flowers were in case the guest asked. But right towards the top, there were these different boxes. And one of the boxes kind of came to be what was called the Legends box. So it was first called Legends, I believe was the term, because the idea was if you did something special for a guest, something unique out of the ordinary, maybe it was like just a special dish that they really wanted and you worked at the kitchen to make something for them, then your name would go in this Legends box. And so it was something that we kind of were encouraging each other to do to think about different ways that we could kind of go above and beyond for guests so it became like this this call out and I remember it'd be little things like I remember I was a captain or I was a server at this point and the guests that were dining that night we had these soft spoons which are like a more flat spoon that had this little notch in it and they were really enamored by the soft spoons and they wanted to know like what is this spoon what is it used for what's the history and at the time we actually had what we called plus one cards so we had a whole box, a whole drawer filled with different cards that gave more information on different things because we would get a lot of like the same questions over and over again. It'd be like, whether it be questions on the, the history of the building or the soft spoon or our plateware or our coffee service. And so we would have these cards that were already printed that gave like a little blurb, a little more information. And so it was a fun kind of ready, easily accessible thing for a server where you could kind of turn around and that was like a quick kind of moment of magic because in their mind maybe they don't know that the drawer exists so they might just be thinking that you're running back to print out and find this information for them and so the guests were asking about the soft spoons I ran back and I grabbed the card and gave it to them and they were so excited and I believe they got up to go on a tour of the kitchen at one point and I told Billy who was my captain at the time I was like we need to give them a set of soft spoons we need to package it up and leave it for them and and so he agreed. And I remember I, we put like a bow, we had a branded, a little card bow and I tied it around the spoons and I like had it waiting for them. So when they came back from their tour, they saw that they got to take home these two soft spoons. So it'd be little things like that, that, I mean, for me, it would just, I got such joy out of seeing their reaction that it was this high that you wanted to chase and you wanted to keep doing more and more and more. And so basically this was happening, I think, across the team at that point, kind of inspired by the competitive nature of wanting to get your name in the box or just wanting to feel the rush of seeing someone get so excited about it. And so things started to evolve. We started to kind of talk about it a little bit more. Things started to get a little bit more grand. We had one of our host reservationists, Christine. She was very talented. She was sewing. She was in the arts world. And so she became, I believe, the very first Dreamweaver, where she would take certain shifts a week and would not be a host reservationist, but she would be sitting in the back office doing calligraphy, writing messages for people. But then if you needed to do something on the fly to have her make something, she would be the person that would have the time to do it. Because the other tricky thing is in kind of coming up with these ideas and concepts, you have a big idea, but ultimately you still have eight tables that you need to serve. And so being able to step away from them and do that isn't really a reality. And so you kind of need someone in place. And so I think the more that this started to happen, the more we realized that we need kind of infrastructure to support it. And so that's where we started to, once Christine was in that role and we saw that taking off even further, Emily Parkinson came into our world and she became the first person that we hired specifically to be a Dreamweaver. And more of like a full-time position where we started to have this whole cabinet in the back hallway that was filled with 
paper cutters and glue guns and watercolor supplies and felts and fabrics. And that's when things started to get crazy in the good way, um, where the legends, the dream weaving, all of those moments just got bigger and bigger. I remember one of our sommeliers at the time, John Ross, was a great example of someone who like ultimately, especially at that point, if Emily's in the back office, she's not on the floor. She's not hearing what the guests are saying. She's not listening or clearing their plates and someone says something offhand. Those are the moments that you need to kind of seize on in order to make the dreams happen. And so we needed to be her eyes and ears and ultimately kickstart the idea. And then she would produce or make it the most beautiful version of that idea. And so John Ross was a sommelier at the time, and he was a great example of someone who kind of bought into that idea. And his ideas were just, I mean, were crazy. We ended up like, I think a guest got excited about water guns or mentioned water guns. And then we had them, if you take champagne and you heat up the top of it, it's basically called port tonging. I don't know if you've seen this in restaurants, but you wrap these tongs around the neck of the bottle and heat it up using like a flame. Then if you hit it with a little bit of cold water, the the top will just pop off. If you do it to champagne, it's like a little bit tricky because all of a sudden you've got that built up, all of those bubbles waiting to explode. And so I think we set up a table outside where he brought a water gun and had the guests stand outside and shoot the champagne gun from a, or the, the water gun from a distance in order for the champagne to kind of blow off the top. So things just got kind of out of hand in a really good way. But I feel like I'm getting off topic, so feel free to stop me. No, no, no. I'm riveted. I really am. Because, I mean, these are all of the things that we all aspire to do. Every restaurant wants to be that. Every independent owner and operator that opens a restaurant, they don't envision themselves behind a desk doing the schedule, right? Chefs, right? They don't envision themselves cooking on the line. They imagine themselves commanding a line, expediting, making sure things are perfect, finishing plates, talking to guests, maybe sometimes, depending on the chef. These are the dreams of independent restaurateurs. This is why we get into it. And yet, it is such a rare occasion that you see this level of surprise and delight implemented. And so it's great to hear the stories because they're super, super inspiring. But the big retorts are going to be, one, we don't have the money to do it. Two, we don't have the time to do it. And three, the staff doesn't give a shit, right? And so if those are the three big hurdles that we're working to overcome, I am positive that at EMP, all three of those were hurdles as well, right? There's never enough money. There's never enough time. And you mentioned it earlier, but I'm sure that there were periods of significant turnover as EMP evolved over time. I mean, honestly, Getting a job at a one-star Michelin restaurant is signing up for one thing. Getting a job at a three-star Michelin restaurant is signing up for a very, very different work experience. So I'm sure not everybody made it, and I'm sure not everybody was bought in. But I'm curious to know, based on what I can only imagine was just an amazing 10 years and so interesting and so educational, what kind of mark did it leave on you as you sit in this new role? How did the lessons learned there impact your day-to-day and how you see your current role? I learned so much working there. What started as, yeah, again, a temporary stint in the dining room before I thought I was going to go back to working in the kitchen, obviously involved into so much more. And I was lucky enough to be in so many different positions over my time there. And I think even just the random 
things that I had to do from time to time were so bizarre, but I loved it because I love learning about so many different things. Anything from like getting permits for events, which was like a new skill or working with the New York fire department on certain things, or we went on the Jimmy Fallon show once and we wanted to create, instead of a jellied cranberry, we wanted to do a massive jar of jellied turkey where a whole turkey was just congealed in gel. And I had to find a prop that looked like a giant can and created a label for it. And it was just one of those strange moments where we're like, what is my job? I remember we would throw this party with the Big Apple barbecue and we would put on this bourbon bar and there's a photo of me somewhere sitting at my desk answering emails while I'm like blowing up a giant inflatable donut that I had to paint. So I think what I took away from it is just the opportunity or ability to learn and dive into anything. If you don't know how to do it, you can probably figure it out. And Will definitely has that mindset of he has the big ideas and then throws it at you to kind of figure out how to turn it into reality. And so I think learning that I actually could do that after a couple of years of seeing some things come into life I was like wait no you can like I think there's this idea that things are impossible or these roadblocks there's always a way around it or kind of maybe just repositioning the idea a little bit so I think that has definitely I've carried that into my role now working with him I mean we're doing a number of different things now we're running our hospitality conference the welcome conference and all the ideas there and the new skill sets again I feel like any kind of curveball that comes my way it's I can more or less figure it out if we're coming from the times of using water guns and port tonging champagne. It's like, well, I guess I can figure this out too. The restaurant industry is filled with all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? What a great question. Thank you. (laughs) I think it's interesting in this post-pandemic world where things had a chance to be put on hold. And I think as far as the system of kitchen and dining room and those dynamics, I think I was lucky enough to work in a restaurant that really believed in breaking down that wall. And so I think culturally moving in that direction of, yeah, kind of like embracing that teamwork mentality and whether that's from the starting to narrow that pay gap or benefits or just creating, moving away from the, I think that culture of restaurants being romanticizes this hardcore, ruthless environment. Again, I feel like my time at Madison Park like cushioned me in so many ways where it was like, wait a minute, this can be like a really beautiful thing. And so I think I would love to see other restaurants kind of grow to adopt that, which I think it is starting to, I see it at least in some ways, move in that direction. I think some of the realities of the industry are starting to come to light in different articles and the conversations are happening. And I think even with Will's book and our conference, the focus on hospitality and dining room and that experience can bleed into the kitchen and bleed into how you're treating the people that you work with and treating the people in your care. As creative director, have a little bit of oversight on the Dreamweavers themselves. Then started to sit down with them and talk about how we could improve the systems or how we could see an example of an idea that maybe wasn't as great and this one is as great or how could we have made that idea better and so actually thinking a little bit more critically about the program to kind of evolve it and so by the time I left that's kind of the phase that we had gotten to and so everything else at 11 Madison Park it was that rolling process to kind of get to the end and I know that the team has three movers now and I'm sure their program has evolved since and is even more magical and so you left make it nice yeah but you're still with Will yeah (laughs) so I'm curious to know 
based on what I can only imagine was just an amazing 10 years and so interesting and so educational. What kind of mark did it leave on you as you sit in this new role? How did the lessons learned there impact your day-to-day and how you see your current role? I learned so much working there. What started as, yeah, again, a temporary stint in the dining room before I thought I was going to go back to working in the kitchen obviously evolved into so much more. And I was lucky enough to be in so many different positions over my time there. And I think even just the random things that I had to do from time to time were so bizarre, but I loved it because I love learning about so many different things. Anything from like getting permits for events, which was like a new skill or working with the New York fire department on certain things, or we went on the Jimmy Fallon show once and we wanted to create, instead of a jellied cranberry, we wanted to do a massive jar of jellied turkey with a whole turkey was just congealed in gel. And I had to find a prop that looked like a giant can and created a label for it. And it was just one of those strange moments where we're like, what is my job? I remember we would throw this party with the Big Apple barbecue and we would put on this bourbon bar. And there's a photo of me somewhere sitting at my desk answering emails while I'm like blowing up a giant inflatable donut that I had to paint. So I think what I took away from it is just the opportunity or ability to learn and dive into anything. If you don't know how to do it, you can probably figure it out. And Will definitely has that mindset of he has the big ideas and then throws it at you to kind of figure out how to turn it into reality. And so I think learning that I actually could do that after a couple of years of seeing some things come into life, I was like, wait, no, you can. Like, I think there's this idea that things are impossible or these roadblocks. There's always a way around it or kind of maybe just repositioning the idea a little bit. So I think that has definitely, I've carried that into my role now working with him. I mean, we're doing a number of different things now. We're running our hospitality conference, the welcome conference, and all of the ideas there and the new skill sets. Again, I feel like any kind of curveball that comes my way, it's, I can more or less figure it out if we're coming from the times of using water guns and port-tonging champagne. It's like, well, I guess I can figure this out too. The restaurant industry is filled with all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? What a great question. Thank you. (laughs) I think it's interesting in this post-pandemic world where things had a chance to be put on hold. And I think as far as the system of kitchen and dining room and those dynamics, I think I was lucky enough to work in a restaurant that really believed in breaking down that wall. And so I think culturally moving in that direction of, yeah, kind of like embracing that teamwork mentality and whether that's from the starting to narrow that pay gap or benefits or just creating, moving away from the, I think that culture of restaurants being romanticizes this hardcore, ruthless environment. Again, I feel like my time at Madison Park like cushioned me in so many ways where it was like, wait a minute, this can be like a really beautiful thing. And so I think I would love to see other restaurants kind of grow to adopt that, which I think it is starting to, I see it at least in some ways, move in that direction. I think some of the realities of the industry are starting to come to light in different articles and the conversations are happening. And I think even with Will's book and our conference, it's the focus on hospitality and dining room and that experience can bleed into the kitchen and bleed into how you're treating the people that you work with and treating the people in your care. 
Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com to learn more today. That's Natasha McIrvin. To check out what she's working on now, visit thankyou.nyc. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.